Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we do have a word, a word to tell us about Jesus, a word uh, through whose teaching, rebuke, correction and training we can be equipped to live lives that please you. Help me now to speak this word truthfully and clearly. And of your great mercy, help us to receive this word as your word, to understand it and to know its work in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in the light of the goings-on in Canberra for the last few weeks, verse 17 has a hollow ring to it, doesn't it? Obey your leaders and submit to them. In fact, for many of us, it's a disturbing verse for our suspicion of leadership is deep-seated. Uh, like many others, I'm the grandchild of a World War I veteran and I grew up thinking that leaders were people who were willing to throw your life away through lack of imagination or through incompetence, pride and self-interest. And so I share with many Australians what I have considered to be a healthy suspicion of claims by our leaders that they should be trusted. And of course, that suspicion of leadership, that's not just for leadership out there in the state. No, that includes church leadership. It's more than 40 years since Jim Jones, the leader of his church, led 800 people to join him in a mass suicide. And more recently, who in the churches have been hiding the pedophiles that brought shame on the name of Jesus? Well, it's the leaders. And on a personal note, who, for many of you, have been responsible for the grief you have experienced in leaving church communities in which you were settled? So our motto is, be suspicious of your leaders and always question their authority and decisions. And so when we read, obey your leaders and submit to them, it's a little jarring, isn't it? Our tendency is to think it doesn't, it can't mean what it says and to want, on, and to, want to move on quickly from what we see as a potentially dangerous, easily abused instruction. But this is the word of God and it means what it says and it's given for our good. So today let's try and step out of our cultural suspicion and think about leadership in congregations and our responsibility to leadership about why God gives this instruction. And we'll think about that under four headings in your outline. Leaders are given to us for a purpose. Leaders are to be respected. We should pray for our leaders. And our leaders should pray. Now, when our author is speaking of leaders in verse 17, who is he talking about? Because the word translated leader is really quite a general term. Joseph was described as a leader in Egypt. And a related noun is used of people who had official functions and roles in government. So leaders are a general term for those who have any kind of responsible position of leadership in any kind of group. It's not a term that gives us any description of the specific role and responsibilities of these leaders amongst the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews. In verses 17 and 24, the author is speaking of the community's present leadership and there are a number of them. So notice that there is plural leadership in the Christian community. 
And these present leaders are the successors of those leaders who are mentioned in verse 17, where he says, remember your leaders, those who preach the word of God to you. Those leaders were distinguished by their preaching of the word of God. And that is the distinguishing mark, it seems, of leadership in Hebrews, preaching the word, modelled by our author himself, who teaches the gospel word. We get a better idea of the job of these leaders from the description that follows. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. They keep watch. And that's a word that was used to describe the work of shepherds and the sleepless nights they had looking after, protecting their flock. The work of these leaders in this congregation is to care for, be alert to protect the members of their congregation. In particular, it says they keep watch over your souls. They are to be alertly concerned for the welfare of and safety of souls. And soul is used deliberately. It's not just another way of referring to you. And so while the leaders have a daily and constant concern, the soul actually refers to us in terms of a life that continues into eternity. And so in Hebrews 10.39 we read, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Preserving our souls is all about preserving, persevering to come to the new heaven and earth. And so leaders keep watch over believers in Jesus as people who have an eternal future. Leaders are to be alert to any threat that would take a believer away from eternal life, prevent them from being safe and secure with Jesus forever. Now that's a big responsibility, isn't it? Can we learn any more about this group? Well, yes, from the rest of the New Testament. While the word leader in general, the description of the responsibilities of this particular group of congregational leaders overlaps with the responsibilities uh, of those described elsewhere in the New Testament as elders or overseers. And those leaders were present in New Testament congregations from the earliest times. So this is Paul coming back from his first missionary journey and he appoints elders in every congregation. And we get a glimpse of their role and how they're to carry it out from other references in the New Testament to elders. So here is a very brief description from Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. They are to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. Again, you see that language of sheep and shepherds. Like shepherds, leaders are to protect this precious flock from danger, pay attention to its good order, nurture and guide the flock so it remains safe and healthy. This is the purpose of God giving leaders to his people. And again, those are very real and serious responsibilities. And with that responsibility comes a real authority. What's the nature of that authority? Well, it's a delegated authority. These leaders are to keep watch, go about the task entrusted to them as those who will have to give an account. 
They're accountable to the chief shepherd, Jesus, for the way they exercise their authority. Or in terms of the parable we heard read, they're accountable to the owner of the house for their service in caring for his other servants. Now that accountability tells you again both the purpose of this authority and also tells you its limits. Leaders have no authority in themselves. They have authority only where they're carrying out their master's instructions in doing the job Jesus has entrusted to them. So the limit of their authority is the word of God, their master's word. Where they go against that word or beyond it or even where they act outside of it, they have no authority over Jesus' sheep. It's important to remember this when you're dealing with anyone who claims leadership in a congregation. They are abusing their authority, no matter how they arrived at their position. They're abusing all their authority, going beyond its limits when they are disobeying Jesus or doing something other than he has commanded. And so in those circumstances, they don't need to be obeyed or listened to by Jesus' people. And it should go without saying, and because it goes without saying, we have to say it, it should go without saying that a leader, say, who tells you to lie or to keep secrets from those who should know, like boys and girls say, your parents, or a leader who seeks to obtain sexual favours, or a leader who is directing you to enrich him, or a leader who teaches what is in opposition to the word of God, who acts in disobedience in any way to the chief shepherd Jesus, should never be obeyed. And mums and dads, you should make sure as you teach your children the faith that they know that. But knowing leaders have a delegated authority reminds you that Jesus has appointed them in the congregation for a purpose. Jesus has given them to protect his people and promote their welfare by keeping Jesus and his word central to congregational life because that's how we keep on being Jesus' people, isn't it? Listening to Jesus, trusting him and doing his will. Leaders are given by Jesus for a purpose. And as they teach his word, they are leaders whom believers should heed, should obey and submit to. Now, where the other translations have obey, you'll notice there the second lot that the NIV has have confidence in. It's trying to bring out a nuance of the word translated obey, which in other contexts can be translated as persuade or be persuaded. So verse 17 isn't calling for the obedience of soldiers being yelled at, at the on the parade ground by their drill sergeant. No, it's the obedience that comes from being persuaded of the truth of the taught word. It's asking believers to engage with the teaching of their leaders, to listen to them as they open up God's word and to trust that they are teaching it truthfully and to change their thought and practice to conform to the thought taught word. And our author adds to that command that we should submit to our leaders, do what they ask. Where the word has been clearly taught, you should not stubbornly refuse to believe and obey it. And so if, for example, God's word urges you to meet regularly with God's people, as we have seen it so clearly does, and if your leaders 
as we do, have applied that to your life and told you that your Christian life would be so much healthier, your growth more consistent if you meet regularly with other believers, well then you should make the changes that allow you to do so, whether that's not staying up too late on Saturday or just planning your life so that you can be here or not getting involved with competing activities because this is the word of God and it's a sure prescription for improved spiritual health. And if you find that difficult to meet regularly, and some do, some find it difficult to be in the larger meeting, well, come and talk it through. But there are also areas of congregational life for which there's no direct teaching in Scripture, but where the leaders might make a decision for the common good. If that decision doesn't go against any command of Scripture, then for the well-being and good order of the whole, it's good to submit to that. Let me give you a good example. Name tags. Now there is, I'm sure you've noticed, no command in the Bible to wear a name tag. And there is, thankfully, no command not to. Now this was a decision for the common good, to assist love by helping people overcome the awkwardness of not knowing or remembering someone's name when they speak to them. And it was a decision to help the pastors with their pastoral care by letting us know who is and is not at church. Now, you may not be wholly convinced by the reasoning, but it is actually the elders' decision to make. And having made the decision, it's actually something that works for us all where we all work at it, where we submit for the sake of the common good. Respecting leadership prevents these secondary things becoming the subject of interminable, distracting debate. It actually allows us to make decisions about our common life and get on. Though isn't it good that that decision is not just made by one person, some dictator somewhere, but actually by a group of elders? Now, Scripture's not calling here for a mechanical or reluctant obedience or a passive non-compliance. It's calling for an active cooperation with those who serve in leadership, a cooperation based on seeing them as Jesus' provision for our common good and maintaining a trust based on a transparent commitment by all of us to doing what Jesus says. And our author does give a reason for obeying. Let them do this, he says, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You obey so your leaders can both keep watch and give account at the last day with joy, not with groaning. For to cause them to groan would be of no benefit to you and to cause them to labour with joy will be of every benefit to you. Have you ever wondered what causes faithful Christian leaders joy and what makes them groan inwardly? Well, we can get an idea of that from scripture, from the letters of Paul where he tells us over and over what causes him joy in his ministry and what causes him pain. Listen as Paul writes to the Philippians about his joy. He's joyful because of their partnership of your, in the gospel that they had with Paul. Verse 4, oh, complete my joy by being, he says, two, two of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. 
I'll therefore forewarn my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord. See, the Philippians' partnership in the gospel brings joy to Paul for it tells him that they are convinced about Jesus, that he's Lord and his gospel saves. Their commitment to being one in mind and love brings him joy for it tells him they understand what Jesus has done and that they love his people and want to live like Jesus. And their perseverance brings him joy because he loves them and wants their good, their salvation which is theirs as they persevere in trusting Jesus. Paul's joy comes from seeing believers trust Jesus and growing conviction about him, in seeing them love Jesus and cheerfully serve him by doing his will, in seeing them secure in Jesus. And we see the same in his letter to the Thessalonians. You might like to read it. But he calls the Thessalonians his glory and joy. And what do we see Paul giving thanks for in the lives of the Thessalonians if we read the letter? Well, it's their reception of the gospel as the word of God, their perseverance despite suffering, the fruit of believing the gospel in their work of faith, labour of love and steadfastness of hope. Those are the things that show they belong to Jesus and will share in Jesus' salvation and they bring joy to faithful leaders. Perhaps the simplest statement of a leader's joy is that of John. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That is, trusting Jesus and living his way following him. That's what causes joy. What causes groaning? Well, it's where believers are straying from belief in the gospel to pursue other teachings or where they're sinning and refusing to repent, growing cold in faith, doing things that threaten their being saved, doing things that show that they are not trusting and obeying Jesus as he deserves. And so, for example, Paul speaks of his fears for and grief over the Corinthians who refused to repent of their sin despite his urging. He speaks of his distress, the anguish of childbirth, which I'm led to believe involves a degree of groaning. He speaks of... Uh, I was wondering if there'd be you know, any resonance there. No, they, half of you don't even want to think about it. That's OK. Childbirth, yes. But uh, definitely causes him anguish at the thought that they're being led away from trusting Jesus to trusting in their own works. Causing your leaders to groan is of no advantage to you. For the behaviour that would cause them to groan is behaviour that makes you distant from Jesus now and threatens your eternal salvation. And it's behaviour that means that you are getting no benefit from God's provision of leaders for you. Whereas Behaviour that causes leaders joy is full of advantage because it's behaviour that means you are growing in Jesus and are persevering to eternal life. So for your own good, you should be wanting your leaders to do their work with joy and not with groaning. But you should also want that as part of your brotherly love for them, the love that we're all called to show to each other as the first part of our worship at the beginning of Hebrews 13. You see, to exhaust your leaders with grief and groaning is no love for them. 
and it may well rob you of their service. So leaders do have a real authority in the congregation where they exercise it in teaching God's word faithfully and where they do that, they are God's provision for your welfare. That benefit is enjoyed where their work is carried out and received in an atmosphere of mutual trust and cooperation, where we are all committed to the truth and to love in all our dealings with each other. Now, of course, recognising the role of leaders means that we should choose them carefully, and God gives us instruction about who to look for in Timothy and Titus, but that's really for another day. For now, are you obeying your leaders? and submitting to them as they teach the word of God to you. Oh, questioning them, yes. It's how you maintain trust. Testing against the scriptures what they say, yes. But listening and changing where the word is taught truthfully. Are you making the most of God's provision of leaders to you? Well, our author goes on to seek prayer for leaders. And that's a reminder that part of our love for our leaders is prayer for them. Pray for us, he writes, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honourably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, we're not sure like much of the surrounding specific circumstances of the writing of Hebrews of exactly what he's speaking about, of, of why he gives this assurance of his clear conscience. Uh, perhaps, uh, like Timothy, who's just been released from jail, he'd been detained by the authorities and in his absence some might have suggested he deserved their suspicion, but we don't know. He just says, pray for us. Pray for all leaders. But he also wants them to pray for something specific, that he would be reuni reunited with them. You see, he knows the Lord controls all things, the decisions of governments and local authorities, the movements of wind and tide. If the Lord wills, he can bring him home. He's not embarrassed to make specific prayer requests for specific needs. He knows he depends on God for all things related to his life and service. And no plan will prosper but by God's will. And we believe that too, don't we? That's why we just prayed for Theo and Lynn. We should have that same dependence and confidence and seek God's favour for the plans and ministry of ourselves and our leaders. You know, Paul often asked for prayer for his ministry whether it was for an opening for the gospel in Colossians or for boldness and clarity in preaching the gospel or for the protection or for protection from his enemies so that he could further his gospel plans strive together with me he says to the romans in your prayers to god on my behalf now when you read those requests by paul you ought to be thinking wow you know, if the Apostle Paul asks for prayer, how much more do the spiritual pygmies, who are my leaders, need prayer? That's what you should be thinking. It should urge you on to pray for us. Oh, and how much more do our brothers and sisters, who are, say, preaching the gospel on campus, need prayer? Oh, how much more do I need prayer for my role in growth group or kids club 
or youth group. So, are you praying for your leaders? Praying God would prosper their plans for the gospel, give opportunities to speak it, grant boldness and clarity. And let me say, please pray for us. We need your prayer, I need your prayer, and it is love to pray. And just as leaders seek prayer, they also pray themselves. They pray because of the task entrusted to them, of watching over God's people so that they come to their eternal home. You see, leaders, though they might be faithful and should be faithful in teaching God's word, know that they can't soften hard hearts, they can't stir the sluggish into action, they can't turn them to cry out to Jesus for grace and help, they can't bring the conviction of sin that will move someone to cling to Jesus for mercy, they can't flood their hearts with a knowledge of God's love when they're under trial. All that is the work of God through his word and spirit. So leaders seek from God for those they serve what God alone can do and yet what must be done if you and I are to be saved. A leader's hope that he and those in his charge will have joy at the last day is in God. So leaders pray. And we've got an example, a wonderful example of a leader's prayer, a prayer we should pray for each other in verses 20 to 21. And in this prayer we see why we should have confidence in God and what we can seek confidently from God. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. You see that? The God to whom we praise, the God of peace. That is, he is the source of the peace with himself, that he has brought us to know in trusting Jesus, the peace that allows us to come confidently to him without fear in prayer. And he is the God who has brought Jesus from the dead. That is, he is the almighty saving God. He is the one who's designed and purposed salvation through willing his son to take on flesh and blood and die for the sins of his people and who raised him from the dead to be the saviour of the world. He wants his people saved. And so we can come to him with confidence where we're seeking the good of his people, seeking their perseverance and godliness. And he's the one who's given us Jesus, who lives and reigns, as we've seen throughout Hebrews, the one who sits now at the Father's right hand, the one who is priest forever, the one we have been assured intercedes for us, and whose presence in the Father's presence assures us we can always find mercy and help when we draw near to God. And our author says, Jesus is the reigning Lord because of the blood of the eternal covenant, the covenant that lasts forever. That is the new covenant of Hebrews 8 and 10. We are being reminded by its mention here that it is by virtue of his unique and unrepeatable sacrifice of himself on the cross, by his obedience to death, 
that Jesus is now the raised and exalted Lord. So even as we are seeking the Father's help, we are reminded and reassured because this is the covenant where every sin is forgiven, never remembered by our God. And our risen, exalted Lord is, we are told, the great shepherd of his people. And so we mustn't think of him as exalted and distant. No, we're being told he is the constant protector and provider of his people, his flock, even as he reigns. So this prayer is a prayer to the God we've come to know in the gospel, we have come to know in the gospel, a prayer that expresses the confidence we have in God in believing the gospel, a prayer that encourages us to approach our God with the same confidence. We are in these words wonderfully assured of God's interest, his willingness and his ability to hear and help us when we come to him asking for what is according to his will. And what is according to his will? What does the leader of God's people seek for those who've been listening to his word? Well, he prays, verse 21, that God would equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever. He prays that God would equip his hearers with all that we need, because we're his hearers, all that we need, every gift, every encouragement, every insight, every ounce of strength we need to do his will. That will, we have learned in chapter 10, we must do to come to what he's promised us. And he prays that God would work in us what is pleasing in God's sight, that is, that life of acceptable worship he has just called for in Hebrews 13. So our author is asking God that he will make it possible for his hearers to respond to his word, that he'll give us all we need to put this word that's been preached into practice and so be amongst those who persevere in faith and come to the heavenly city. Be those who are welcome in the presence of the living God who worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. He is asking God to give the response God calls for to the word that God has given through him. That is a leader's prayer. His hope is in God's work and in God's grace towards us. And that gracious work is not a reason for us not to work, is it? I mean, we've been called throughout Hebrews to respond, to be diligent, to be stirred up. No, that gracious work is the possibility and cause of our work, the reason for our giving ourselves wholeheartedly to persevere in following Jesus. This is a wonderful prayer. Is this or something like it, what you confidently pray for, for each other? Is it what you pray for, for those you lead and teach in whatever capacity? Leaders rely on God, for they are servants, seeking in the lives of God's people what God wills, and only God himself can bring about. God has given us leaders. They are God's provision for you, where those temptations we've seen in Hebrews 
are as real today as they were then. You know those temptations? To drift away, to be hardened by sin, to be sluggish in seeking to know Jesus, to abandon his uniqueness for comfort, to fall back into relying on rituals and work. Leaders reminding you of who Jesus is and what he has done are his provision to help you persevere as they teach God's word. So how do you relate to your leaders? Are you open to persuasion and change where the word of God is opened and taught to you? Do you cooperate with their oversight of congregational life? Will you pray for them? And in your own leadership responsibilities, will you rely on God, seeking diligently from God his gifts for and work in the lives of those you teach and serve? It's a wonderful prayer, isn't it? And with that prayer, the author effectively brings his work to a close. We've come to the end of Hebrews and our author gives us a final word of encouragement to engage with his message. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And as he says that, the reader is rolling up the scroll and the congregation are getting ready to sing the last hymn and leave. I wonder how the conversation went as those first believers left that meeting. Brief? Oh, I'm going to be late for dinner. Exhortation? Oh, look, those warnings, they're really a bit heavy-handed. I don't feel comfortable about that. Oh, it's just too much. My head is spinning from all those Old Testament references. Or do you think they left expressing thanks, acknowledging the encouragement, spurred on and spurring one another on to persevere? How will you go as we leave Hebrews? I mean, it is dense and full of the Old Testament, isn't it? But as you leave Hebrews, hopefully you will share the author's conviction that the Holy Spirit speaks to us today in his word, in this word. And so you'll be grateful for having been shown Jesus, the Son, in his glory and greatness, to know him as the one who took on our flesh and blood, to be the one who can defeat our enemies and can save and sympathise with us. You'll be renewed in confidence because you've been reminded of the finished work of Christ that he has done once and for all on the cross, all that needs to be done to bring you to God and to bring you to live with God forever. And you'll be excited to have such a great saviour and to know that there is so much more to know about him. So as you leave, will you accept its encouragement to persevere to run with endurance, the race set before us, looking to Jesus. I hope you will receive this as the word of God and you'll read and reread this word of God to you for your encouragement. Because as always, it's actually up to you, isn't it? What kind of soil you'll be, what kind of listener you will be, whether this word will bear good fruit in your lives. I pray that it will. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray.
that you would equip us with everything good so that we will do your will and that you will work in us what is pleasing to you, to the glory of our Saviour Jesus. Help us to take this word to heart, to know Jesus as he is, your exalted Son, our great High Priest, who forever intercedes for us, who can save us completely, the one who gave himself on the cross for us to sanctify us, to perfect us so that we can come and live with you and know we can come and live with you forever. Please spur us on by this word, we pray, to persevere in the race, following Jesus, looking to him, delighting in him, grateful for him, rejoicing in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.